Our text today is from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said, Amen. In our foundation series of sermons, we have spoken about the local church as it being a communion or a community of love. And then last week we spoke of how the family is to be an outpost of the local church. We're to take that communion of love to our houses. Our text tells us that our love is to be without hypocrisy. That is, it's simply to be sincere love, not phony. This means it's selfless, that it's sacrificing for others. Because it's possible for us to simply act like we love others, uh, when in fact we could even be doing that for self-serving reasons. Perhaps we just want to be liked, or maybe we just want to avoid conflict. But that's not the same as a fervent love of the brethren. In both the church and in our families, we're told that we are to abhor, to hate, to despise what is evil. That is, whatever is opposed to God. Whatever is sin, whatever separates, whatever destroys that loving communion, whether it's in the church or in our homes. In fact, we are to cling to or to gravitate toward that which is good or beneficial, good for others, good for the community, whatever builds up, whatever edifies. And so we're all then given a list of things that describe what our church and what our families should look like, and how we should treat one another. And I just want to run through this little brief exposition of this passage, just to amplify it just a bit, though it's pretty straightforward. So, uh, taking a closer look, kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, literally cherishing one's kindred. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and certainly... When you go to your house, there you have husbands and wives and children and siblings and parents and so forth. And, this is a, and so this particular word is especially uh, used as to describe the reciprocal tenderness of parents toward children and children toward parents. Next, in honor, giving preference to one another. That's simply you know, putting the needs of others ahead of your own. No, what do you want to do? What can I do for you? Not what can you do for me? And that's to be the dominant direction here at the church. It's to be the same in our homes. Not lagging in diligence. In other words, not doing it grudgingly or in a sluggish way. Or, uh, and, and, but rather, uh, it is to have earnest care. It's a deliberate desire to implement this kind of loving service toward one another. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And it's used, this word is, uh, the Greek word is used to describe boiling water. Uh, That kind of excited enthusiasm. A good attitude, 
recognizing that all the service we perform, when we're taking out the trash or doing the dishes or cleaning up after a fellowship meal or listening to someone, we could go on and on with all the list of daily chores and things we do. All of that is ultimately service to the Lord. That's a perspective. When we see it that way, it changes how we look at what we're doing. So I'm to sweep the floor to the glory of God. I'm doing it for Him. Yeah, I'm doing it for my family. It's part of my responsibility. It's my job. And therefore, I need to, whatever I do, whether I eat or drink, I do it all to the glory of God. Rejoicing in hope. Boy, you know, God never leaves it as this. He never leaves our duties at some superficial level, a list of chores. But He always goes to the heart of the matter. And so I am to rejoice in hope. That is, I'm to have a joyful disposition in all of this a po- and positive expectations. I don't know exactly how God's going to use what I'm doing. I don't know how he's going to take these little tasks that, that I do day in and day out to serve the church or to serve the family or even serve the world. But God takes loaves and fishes and he feeds the 5,000, right? And he does the same with these good works, these things he's called us to do when we do it rejoicing in hope. And he anticipates that in the midst of all that, there are going to be some hard times. And so I'm also called to be patient in tribulation. That is to persist, to hang in there under trouble when it's burdensome, when there's affliction, when it's difficult. That's especially when we are called to shine and to show forth Christ. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. This isn't a go it alone. This isn't just you, uh, you know, by your own strength out there doing these things. You're going before the Lord. You're dependent upon Him. Uh, and, and so you're steadfastly doing this continually. There's unremitting care. Uh, praying with and for one another. And then distributing to the needs of the saints. To come into communion or fellowship with or to be a sharer to be made a partner, spending our time and our labor and our money to serve others. And then he kind of summarizes this, and here's where I want to focus is on this last phrase, which is given to hospitality. These are not simply requirements, by the way, for a few Christians, super Christians. It includes all of us. And while verses 3 through 8, the passage before we got to this passage, have made it clear that there are a variety of gifts in the church and in your family. Some people are better at some things than others and so forth. Uh, uh, Nevertheless, the differing gifts, whatever they are, are to be employed in various acts of hospitality. In other words, not all hospitality looks the same. We don't all have to do it the same way, but we do all have to do it. Let me rephrase that. We do all get to do it. God was was, and is hospitable to all of us. And therefore, out of gratitude to Him, we in turn extend that grace, that hospitality to others. That's the motivation. We're told to pursue hospitality. That is, we're to look for opportunities. We're to create opportunities to show hospitality, even if it's hard for us to do. 
Therefore, the easiest thing for us to do, because it's hard, is to neglect hospitality, since there are a thousand excuses for not doing it. I gave you ten of those in a piece of paper I included in your order of worship today. Ten of the most common ones, but there's lots of others. It's the path of least resistance, and our natural self-centeredness leaves little room for hospitality. We're so busy that we forget about it and we neglect it. Now, the meaning of the word hospitality is the quality or disposition of receiving and treating guests and strangers in a warm, friendly, generous way. Literally, the word in the Greek means a lover of strangers. So we'll expand upon that in a moment. But let's back up a little bit. This, we're going to go look a little bit, just briefly, at the Old Testament and then the New Testament and see how this is, these are patterns that have been here all along. In the Old Testament, we find the act of hospitality is rooted in the person and the character of God himself. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 and 34, it says, And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What is the motivation for hospitality here? I am the Lord your God. I am Jehovah your God. Why do we love strangers? Because we were strangers. They were strangers in the land of Egypt. We're going to see in the New Testament that we too are described as strangers. We love strangers because we were strangers and God loved us. The Israelites were strangers in Egypt, but they aren't anymore. The words, I am the Lord your God, are the very, some of the first words found in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt who, and out of the house of bondage. I am the Lord your God, which occurs dozens of times in Leviticus 19, is shorthand for I am Yahweh who came to you when you were oppressed, when you were strangers in Egypt, and I took you in. I showed you hospitality. For the people of God in the Old Testament, the duty of hospitality is reflective of the character of God. Therefore, you shall love the stranger as yourself. This is the same thing we see when we come into the New Testament and ask how Christians are motivated to show or extend hospitality. Paul reminds the Gentile Christians in, in Ephesus, that, that, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been extended hospitality. The Israelites might have been God's people, but, they didn't, but that didn't include us Gentiles. It didn't do us any good. We were still aliens and strangers. We were still outside without God and having no hope. But then Christ, according to Ephesians 2, 15 through 16, 
sacrificed himself, having abolished in his flesh the hostility or the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. What's one of the biggest problems we have in the world? People hate each other. There's all kinds of strife, all kinds of enmity. Political enmity, enmity, racial enmity, uh, economic enmity. I mean, it just oozes out everywhere. How is this ever going to change? Where is the hope? We're going to see it's in hospitality. It's in us extending grace to even those, even those we disagree with, even those that we might not even particularly like the way they're acting or behaving. How are we going to win them? By loving them. By sacrificing ourselves for them, just as Christ sacrificed himself for us when we were not lovely either. Uh, Christ came to reconcile both Jews and Gentiles to God and thus to each other. And the result for us Gentiles is given in verse 19 of Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You've been taken in. And so the ultimate act of hospitality was when Jesus Christ died for sinners to make everyone who believes a a member of the household of God. We are no longer strangers and sojourners. We've come home to God. Everybody who turns to Jesus finds a home in Christ. So in both the Old and New Testaments, we find the basis for our showing hospitality to others is found in the fact that God himself was hospitable to us, and we are now to reflect that gratitude by emulating him toward others. Those who have received hospitality now extend hospitality. We love him because he first loved us. John Piper observed that, quote, the joy of receiving God's hospitality decays and dies if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to others. Now, there are many benefits to showing hospitality. Hospitality, the first thing it does is it stretches us. Gets us out of our comfort zone. Well, I like to do this. This is how I like my week structured. I like everything neat and tidy and And I don't like anything that disrupts my schedule. I want to be comfortable. And God says, no, no, no. You know, I've thought about this my whole life. If I have the choice, I suspect you're the same way. Wherever I'm headed, I always want to take the shortest route, the straightest route, the flattest route, the safest route. And God almost never lets me go that way. Now, he may be taking me to the same place, but he always takes me the dangerous way, the, the steep way, the the narrow way, the scary way, because he has some things to teach me that I can't learn on that, on that little short, straight, easy path. Well, I'm, I like to organize my life in a way that there aren't any real risk, and I don't have any big challenges. I like everything to just sail along very smoothly. Hospitality starts to stretch us. It often requires us to get out of our comfort zones It exposes us. And you mean I'm going to have people in my house and they're going to see how I actually live? No thanks. 
It humbles us, right? I can't be proud. I have to finally say, well, yep, this is the way we live. Come on in. It cost us something. It cost us labor. cost us time. cost us money. It requires grace and patience and wisdom. Hospitality can be both inconvenient and expensive. Uh, so, you know what? You're going to spend your time and money on something, and this is one of the things you spend your time and money on. This is one of the reasons you work, Ephesians 2. You work with your hands so that you'll have something to give. Something to give away. G.K. Chesterton said an inconvenience is only an ad- adventure wrongly considered. An adventure is an inconvenience rightly considered. I wrote this some time back. Uh, most of us recognize the need to reorder our priorities from time to time. The tyranny of the urgent pushes the important things further and further down the list. But, not, but how do we know that a priority has really become a priority? It's easy to do things when it's easy. We know a priority has truly become a priority when we do it in the face of inconvenience. Attending church, tithing, hospitality, prayer, Bible reading, these are often inconvenient. Nevertheless, it is at the very point of the inconvenience where we find out what something is worth. When our children and others see us Doing the inconvenient thing, that's where they discover what it is that what we really think is important. Extending hospitality pushes us to care more for others than for our personal status in the world. It can be a humbling experience that strikes at our pride. Mary Moeller wrote this, Hospitality is not about the provider. It's not about showing how creative, innovative, organized, proficient, and gifted one is. Instead, it is about selflessly sacrificing one's time, efforts, and some degree of finances. It is about taking the risk to let your guard down and invite people to get to know you beyond a superficial level. It is about abandoning the sinful tendency to be self-absorbed, and instead seek to do whatever is necessary to meet needs. Continuing with benefits, it enriches us. It exposes us to many kinds of people. I look back over the years. I have one, one, one big regret Marinelle and I have is that we didn't, at the beginning of our marriage, have a guest book. Have everybody signed. And so we could remember How many people have been here? How many people have eaten at our table? When? When was that? Uh, Because as my memory fails, uh, as I get older, I've lost track. But I know this. Every single one of them enriched our family in some way. Because of the opportunity to serve. Because of the conversations. Because of getting to really know people. Of uh, just being surprised and delighted and, and... I mean, and it's across the board. So you're enriched, you're exposed, your kids are exposed. 
It's like reading many books. God uses people to shape and to sanctify us. It, exp- it opens doors to ministry. And as we get to know people, we grow to love and appreciate them. Another benefit, it sanctifies us, setting us apart as we serve others. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And I can't think of anything any greater than hospitality as being a perfect place to demonstrate every one of the fruits of the Spirit. It opens up opportunities for the gospel, opening doors to broken hearts and broken people. You know what? People will listen to you and they'll come to you when they know you love them, when they've seen you love them. Not just told them you love them, but actually love them, actually gave of yourself for them. Then guess what? They trust you. They come to you because these people care about me. It means, it's a means of our making deposits into people's lives, which in turn gives us credit with them. I want to recommend uh, a couple of books today, but one is Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I know several of you have read it, but I'd urge you to pick that up. She says, uh, practicing radical, ordinary hospitality, and I'll define, or she'll define that in a moment. Um, uh, And practicing radical, ordinary hospitality is your street credibility with your post-Christian neighbors. It allows you to listen, to keep secrets, to be a safe friend, and to speak a word of grace into dark places in post-Christian communities. Your words can, can be only as strong as your relationships. Your best weapon is an open door a set table, a fresh pot of coffee, and a box of Kleenex for the tears that spill. I want to mention this morning four main categories of hospitality. As I thought about this, I could have expanded this uh, beyond the four, but I want to keep it simple this morning, just some broad ways to think about this. First is hospitality to your family. Let's start local. Psalm 68.6 says, God sets the solitary in families. And I'm fully aware that we have some unmarried adults among us, but they too are members of families, including the family we call the church. We're all members of families at some level. There are parents, siblings, aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews, so forth. Our families are our closest neighbors. And therefore, family is the best place to begin our hospitality, which involves what? Love and service to others. I know you kids are probably fighting all the time over chores. I mean, like, arguing over who gets to take the trash out. No, it's my turn to do the dishes. You sit down. You've had a hard day, right? That's your attitude. It should be. What if we all did that? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be a delightful place to be? Well, that's exactly what we're supposed to be and do. And moms and dads, too. And as my mother said, if that happened, she said, if you did that, I'd faint and fall on my face. So see if you can get your mom to faint and fall on her face. 
by doing something like that. She comes home and the house has been cleaned and she didn't ask you. What happened? Who died? <laughs> What's going on here? So, again, G.K. Chesterton observed, I've always liked this, he said, the best way a man could test his readiness to encounter the common variety of mankind would be to climb down a chimney into any house at random and get on as well as possible with the people inside. And that is essentially what each of us did on the day that he was born. We were born into our family, into this house, with these people. This is where God wanted us to be in order to be shaped into the image of Christ. So here is your small society, full of variety, and it's always the place to start. We start where we are. We start by being hospitable neighbors, friendly, helpful, polite, respectful. Your house is both a hospital and an incubator. Here is where you get to care for broken people. Here is where you get to nurture people. This is Hospitality 101. Second, hospitality to fellow Christians or friends. This is probably the easiest form of hospitality, and yet many have difficulty even with this one. Sometimes we have a problem because we think we are just, quote, not very good at showing hospitality. This is probably because we have a very narrow and restricted view of what hospitality actually is. We think this involves fancy dishes and gourmet food and sophisticated conversation. And while there is a time and a place for this, and some are more gifted with this, nevertheless, this is not this is not the biblical standard for hospitality. Think of the homes of the early Christians. In fact, think of the homes of most Christians in the world. I love to get those reports and photographs from Pastor Volkov when he's come back from the church in Uzbekistan. These are poor people. And he always talks about the feast that they've saved up to, to be able to spend money so they can honor guests and, and show hospitality to them. These are not wealthy people with fancy homes, but they freely and joyfully share what they have. We live in the richest country in the world. We are the richest people who've ever lived in the world. And yet we often barely open our homes and share that because we don't want anything to get messed up or we're too busy or we're too tired or whatever. One excellent example of the unique importance of this topic is found in the writings of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves. And he inspires us by his analysis of the role of hospitality in the early church. I just want to read a couple of paragraphs here. For we all wish to be judged by our peers, by the men after our own heart. Only they really, only they really know our mind and only they judge it by the standards we fully acknowledge. Theirs is the praise we really covet and, and the blame we really dread. The little pockets of early Christians survived because they cared exclusively for the love of the brethren and stopped their ears to the opinions of the pagan society around them. Nothing has changed in terms of our need for affirmation and encouragement from the brethren. What has changed is our willingness to recognize the fact, that fact and act upon it. 
we are all commanded to joyfully practice hospitality just like the early church did. How grateful we should be that our homes do not resemble the sparse and cramped hovels of biblical times. How sobering it is to realize that the obedience of the early church to this simple command had amazing results. And so we need an aggressive concern for hospitality toward our friends and fellow Christians. 1 Peter 4, 8-10. And above all things, Peter writes, Whoa. There's a lot of things in the Bible, right? And Peter's writing about a lot of things. But put this at the top of the list. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, remember we mentioned this earlier in Romans, we all have different gifts, so there's different ways of showing hospitality. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God gave you gifts, now use them in this way. John Piper comments on this passage, The command to be hospitable is not just a command to do something. It is not just a command that can be legalistically fulfilled with a quota of guests. It is a command to be a certain kind of person, namely the kind that doesn't resent having to be hospitable, the kind of person who doesn't look at the extra dishes and bedding and bother and grumble. Practice hospitality ungrudgingly to one another, without murmuring, as the next verse, chapter 4, verse 10 in 1 Peter, implies, let your hospitality be an extension of and an overflow of God's hospitality to you. Be a good steward of God's grace. We cannot be short-sighted because hospitality necessitates a long view. Galatians 6, 9-10, And let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We have obligations to one another. Now that's the second. Third, uh, the third area of hospitality is to neighbors. Think of your neighborhood, but it also could be people at work or at school. A wider circle here. Rosaria Butterfield asked some important questions regarding our neighbors. Love this. Little paragraph. But who who else but Bible believing Christians can make redemptive sense of a tragedy? Who else can see hope in the promise of God when the real uh, lived circumstances look dire? Who else knows that the sin that will undo me is my own, not my neighbor's? No matter how big my neighbor's sin may appear. And where else but a Christian home should neighbors go in times of unprecedented crisis? Where else is it safe to be vulnerable, scared, lost, and hopeless? She refers to what she calls radical, ordinary hospitality, a term that I think is very useful. It's radical because most people don't do it. 
and it is ordinary because anyone can do it. She describes it this way. Radical, ordinary hospitality is this. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. It brings glory to God, serves others, and lives out the gospel in word and deed. If you are prohibited from using your living space in, in this way, it counts if you support it some, some way some, with some household in your church that is doing it. The purpose of radical, ordinary hospitality is to build, focus, deepen, and strengthen the family of God, pointing others to the Bible-believing local church and being earthly and spiritually good to everyone we know. In God's providence, he put you in proximity to some other people. That's your mission field. It could be your neighborhood, it could be your place of work, it could be your school. Who do you know and who should you know? These are your neighbors. Maybe you work with somebody that's really grouchy. Maybe you live with somebody that's really grouchy. That's when you go back to the family, but let's say you work with somebody and they're a little scary. Why do you think they're that way? You're going to just avoid them? Why don't you show them some kindness? Why don't you extend hospitality with a greeting? Why don't you begin there? Surprise them. You don't know what God, you don't, number one, you don't know what's going on in their life. You don't know why they are the way they are. A lot of times you see somebody and I think, you know, they must have had a really hard life. They must have been through some real difficulties. They're so bitter. Wouldn't it be great if they could be re- relieved of that? Maybe God will use me. Maybe he'll use, a, maybe he'll use 15 Christians to do that. You have an opportunity by way of hospitality to show them the love of Christ. By the way, you can even show them hospitality at their house. You can help somebody with a chore or a task or take them some cookies or mow their lawn or meet some other legitimate need. Be a good neighbor. And fourth, and this one really stretches many of us, hospitality to strangers. Now you're pushing me, God. Family, yeah, friends, yeah, neighbors, maybe strangers. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, extending hospitality to strangers, again, stretches most of us. Isn't that risky and dangerous? Yes, it can be. You do need to exercise wisdom, and I don't have time in this sermon uh, to outline all the ways to do that. It obviously depends on who you are. If you're eight years old, there's differences than if you're an adult. If you're a man or a woman or what the circumstances are, uh, there are ways to do this safely and wisely. So just put that as a footnote. I'm not saying you go out and pick up the next person you see and bring them home for dinner. Okay, but, there, but we should be probably picking up more people than we are and bringing them home for dinner. Um, think of the story of the Good Samaritan, which I think is the, illustrates, of course, this hospitality toward a stranger. 
I'm just going to read it. I know you know it, but just listen to it from Luke 10. And Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothes, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, of course we know that that was God's work, right? But now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took, him, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? Now that's not just a quaint story. We're supposed to find ourselves in that story. Who am I? How do I react? We should be on the lookout for such opportunities. <clears throat> I believe we've seen some excellent examples of this in our congregation over the years. And I've seen some of you run toward such opportunities and others who are tempted to avoid them at all costs. We'll let them do that. Again, Rosaria Butterfield makes an excellent point. One option, she says, is to build the walls higher. Declare more vociferously that our homes are our castles. And since the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we best get inside. Thank God for the moat and draw up the bridge. Doing so practices war on the world, but not the kind of spiritual warfare that drives out darkness and brings in the kindness of the gospel. Strategic wall building serves only to condemn the world and the people in it. This kind of war betrays our faith as hollow, vapid, and powerless. In the opening verses of the book of Job, we read, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. Later on, when Job was in the midst of his sickness, one of the virtues that he said he never neglected was hospitality. In chapter 31, verse 32, Job said, But no sojourner had to lodge in the street, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. John Piper summarized it well when he said, When we practice hospitality, we experience the thrill of feeling God's power conquer our fears, our stinginess, and all the psychological gravity of our self-centeredness. And there are few joys, if any, greater than the joy of experiencing the liberating power of God's hospitality, making us a new and radically different kind of people who love to reflect the glory of His grace as we extend it to others in all kinds of hospitality. And I close by thanking each of you for the hospitality that you have extended to your families, to your friends and fellow Christians, to your neighbors, 
and to strangers. All of this shows the world that you love the Father, Son, shows the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hospitality is one of the foundations of a healthy church. And it is from this foundation that we may confidently build and advance the kingdom of God to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, in the greatest act of hospitality, while we were yet strangers to your covenant, you demonstrated your own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Having been received into your household, we come now to sit at your table and commune with you and with one another. Oh, happy day. And as we gather today for our weekly fellowship meal, may we remember that this is an opportunity for us not to serve ourselves, but to show our gratitude toward you for the hospitality you have shown us. And help us, O Lord, to extend that hospitality from our homes and in every place where we go, that family, friends, and strangers might see you in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple other books I want to mention. One is uh, Pastor Steve Wilkins' book called Face to Face on Hospitality, another excellent book. And another book called The Simplest Way to Change the World, Biblical Hospitality as a Way of Life uh, by Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements. And I just want to read a few quotes from that book that I think help us set the table as we come to this table, this place of hospitality and communion. So... The secret weapon for gospel advancement is hospitality. And you can practice it whether you live in a house, an apartment, a dorm, or a high-rise. The world could use more ordinary Christians opening their ordinary lives so others can see what life in the light of the gospel looks like. Jesus said in his kingdom, the smallest of all seeds will leave a lasting impact much larger than expected. In the same way, the smallest things in our lives, ordinary days and meals and homes, can have a much larger impact than you'd ever imagine when harnessed with gospel intentionality. Throughout the saga of history, God consistently initiates relationship. He is a gracious host, constantly welcoming in wayward sinners who deserve his wrath, a people whose only hope is that he would show them undeserved hospitality. Anytime we practice hospitality, we follow in the steps of our lavishly hospitable God. If ever there has been a stranger in need, someone completely excluded and hopeless, fully dependent on the grace of another, that is us. We were out in the cold. Victims of our own folly, freezing to death from the coldness in our own hearts. And all throughout history, God opens the door, rescues us, and welcomes us back into relationship through sheer, inexplicable grace. God has always been forming a hospitable people to put his hospitality on display And if you are in Christ, you are now part of God's hospitable people. And one more. 
Let us use our homes to be micro-representations of that final banquet table. Places where believers gather around the food and drink and drink God has graciously provided, celebrating that God has brought us to himself and opened that sacred space to all who, who are far from him. Let's become relentlessly warm and welcoming because we have been relentlessly welcomed in Christ. Amen. We praise you, O God. Grant us hearts to love and praise you and enable us to show our thankfulness for all your gracious hospitality to us by extending that hospitality to family, friends, and strangers. May we cheerfully conform in all things to your blessed will. Go with us now and continue to conform us as living stones in this spiritual house. Cause us to rest squarely on the chief cornerstone and receive our spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen. Amen.